Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. We have returned. Yes, we have. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. Absolutely. Every single day of the week. But we are back. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode, those of you that are left. You know, I was thinking about something the other day. Uh, The refining of metal. It's a very interesting process, depending on what metal you're working with. But there's this, uh, this concept of refining metal. Basically, you run it through a number of processes. Some of them heat, some of them chemical. And you just keep running it through process after process until you burn away the impurities. And what you're left with at the end of the day, hopefully, is a very pure metal. Uh, your, whatever, whatever metal it is you're working with. could be gold, could be silver, something of that nature. You know, along the way, you introduce a new process to burn away those impurities. And at the end of the day, you have the purest form of that metal that you could possibly have to work with. Now, why is that valuable? Why is it valuable to go through that process? Because for a metal to be the most useful to you that it can be, you have to burn away the impurities. You have to get rid of the kind of the dead weight, so to speak, on, a, of the, on the molecular level there, getting rid of all those other metals or contaminants within the, the metal that you're working with. Like take gold, for instance. You know, gold is very valuable if it's pure gold. Obviously, if you've got some copper in there and you've got some tin or whatever else might be mixed around in there, it's not as valuable because it's not, you don't have as much gold there. But at the end of the day, it's a strategy. There's a strategy involved with actually refining metals and burning out the impurities. Now, somebody might ask the question, Roman, why were you thinking about that? What, what, what are you telling us this for? What, just some random thought passing through your mind? Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. Anyway, on this episode, we're back into the letters, ladies and gentlemen. I know that's what a lot of folks want to get back to, so here we are. It's not like we've been gone from the letters for a long time. It was literally the like two episodes ago we were in the letters. But here we are again, once more, into the fray, so to speak. So we're going to talk about, today, the Boston Tea Party. So a bunch of rabble-rousers decide to get together one day and haul off and throw some tea into a harbor. And they're going to tell you a lot of things about this. They're going to tell you that it was a terrorist act. They're going to tell you that these guys were just a bunch of terrorists. They, they destroyed all kinds of property. They uh, did everything, you know, just short of, you know, murdering every man, woman, and child in and around the vicinity of Boston. All of this is untrue, but that's the way they characterize it. I mean, not, not in so many words, but you get the idea. And then there's other people who know the truth about the, the Boston Tea Party to some limited extent. I mean, they, they understand that it happened. They kind of understand the basic idea around it. But they don't know enough to be able to defend their position and to understand, you know, precisely why it happened. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today as much as we can, as time time allows. So what do you say we get into the, the Boston Tea Party? And maybe I'll have a message after that. But let's get straight into the letters and let's do that right now. Straight into the letters, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get it going. Let's talk about the Boston Tea Party. Let's uh, let's go to John. A- I forgot to mention John Adams is also going to be a guest on the podcast today, along with Samuel Adams. John Adams is going to uh, he's going to lead off. He's going to he's going to get the party started. Now, when it comes to the Boston Tea Party, what was it that instigated the Boston Tea Party? What was the lead up? Because that's what we like to talk about here. You know, the white flag Americans who don't like to listen to this podcast and who, you know, run and hide and suck their thumb in a dark corner while we're studying this material, they may know about the Boston Tea Party, but do they really understand why it happened? And was it important? Was it not important? 
John Adams is going to tell us. Good news, ladies and gentlemen. John Adams is going to tell us because that's what John Adams does. John Adams routinely tells us that this material is important. By the way, I, for, I forget if I mentioned it before. Did you know that John Adams actually wrote about TLDR? Now, he didn't call it that. He called it something else. But I actually remembered this not long ago, and I forget if I had mentioned it on a previous episode or not. But um, maybe I didn't. But he did write about TLDR. Interesting. We're not going to read that today, but maybe sometime in the future I'll, I'll talk to you about that. So, if you, again, if you wonder, like, because I had read that about five or six years ago, something like that, when I was doing my deep research on uh, John Adams, his writings specifically. And I just it just occurred to me the other day. And again, you wonder, like, oh my gosh, does Roman just make this stuff up? No, I don't. Again, the vast majority of what I say on this podcast it just comes... It's I'm channeling the Founding Fathers basically at this point. Not in a spiritual way, but in an intellectual way. So we're going to read a letter written by John Adams, written to a Mercy Otis Warren. On July 20th of 1807. Oh my gosh, Roman, this is long after the Boston Tea Party of 1773. Yes, I know. But, you know, John Adams, he's still talking about it in 1807. He's talking about a lot of things in 1807. You know why? Because he, because with John Adams, the study of history is a way of life. And he wanted to make sure everybody got their facts straight. Of course, what he didn't anticipate... Well, actually, he did. I, I forgot. What John Adams did anticipate was that some future generation of Americans would uh, would rather be sucking their thumb in a dark corner than studying this material. But not us. We are truly the posterity of Samuel Adams and John Adams. We are their countrymen, and I'm happy to be that way. I hope you're happy to be that way as well. I'm sure you are. That's why you're here. So I'm going to read a section of this letter, and it goes a little something like this. Quote, the Stamp Act was repealed, but the claim of Parliament was not relinquished. It was soon followed by other acts laying duties on tea, paints, etc., and what was worse, by a declaratory act asserting the unlimited authority of Parliament over us in all cases whatsoever. I became instantly as decisive and determined and as industrious, too, in opposition to these acts as I ever had been to the Stamp Act. But as, as I am not writing a history, I shall not enter into details. My fourth principle of revolution may be called the necessity of resistance to the Tea Act and the Declaratory Act. End quote. I like this guy's attitude. This guy would be appalled by the white flag nature of many Americans today who, can't, who not only cannot fight for their freedom and liberty, they can't even stand the thought of listening to the words of the people who did. They will not study these letters. And I think I know why, in part. It's because these letters remind them just how cowardly they are. These people in the modern day. People don't like to be reminded that they're cowards. And that the sum total of their courage and virtuosity is making a trip to Starbucks and watching Netflix. Let me read to you what these people in modern day America are afraid of. And I quote, I became instantly as decisive and determined and as industrious too in opposition to these acts as ever I had been to the Stamp Act, end quote. Decisive and determined, ladies and gentlemen. In opposition, thank God, because these acts were terrible. As he says here, quote, But as I am not writing a history, I shall not enter into details. My fourth principle of revolution may be called the necessity of resistance to the Tea Act and the Declaratory Act, end quote. Necessity of resistance to the Tea Act. And thus we begin to enter into the justification, the rationale, the genesis of the Boston Tea Party, and it was the Tea Act, ladies and gentlemen. So what 
What was transpiring here between the Stamp Act, the Declaratory Act, and the Tea Act? Well, a lot of these taxes had been repealed once upon a time. The Founding Fathers had had some victory in this regard. That taxation without representation, a lot of it was done away with, and rightfully so. But the Parliament came in with a few other little jabs at the American colonies. One of them was the Declaratory Act, saying that we could make laws binding you in all cases whatsoever. Sounds, by the way, very familiar to certain people who serve in Congress these days. Oh my gosh, Roman, did you just say what I think? Yep, that's exactly what I just said. Anyway, but there's also this Tea Act. So the, basically, I'll sum it up in a nutshell. If you want to read the long-winded version of the Tea Act, you can't. But basically, in a nutshell, Parliament did not really let go of its taxes on tea. John Adams said it right here, if you were following. Quote, It was soon followed by other acts laying duties on tea, paints, etc. End quote. Duties are taxes. Taxes, ladies and gentlemen! What do we say about taxation without representation? This really got the uh, Founding Fathers fired up, and rightfully so. So here we are. We got this Tea Act, we got taxation without representation, so on and so forth, all kind of done within the context of the Declaratory Act. Now, fast forward from the uh, genesis of the Tea Act and the Stamp Act, although John Adams is telling us about this from 1807, and we would like to thank John Adams for joining us on the podcast today, live from 1807 to deliver that uh, that information to us. But now we're going to hop back in the time machine here, and we're going to go live to Boston in 1773. And we're going to read some documents from the Selectmen and the Committee of Correspondence. These are the people who served in some, some uh, position of authority within the, the city of Boston and the general vicinity thereof. And we're going to read this correspondence that was written in Boston on December 17th of 1773. Now... When did the Boston Tea Party happen? It happened the day before. It happened on December 16th of 1773. So this is the day after, okay? This is the morning after, ladies and gentlemen. And I quote, Whereas the freeholders and other inhabitants of this town did at their last meeting make applications to Richard Clark, Esquire, and Sons, who are supposed to be the persons to whom the East India Company's tea is to come consigned, and request them to resign their appointment to which they returned for answer that they were uncertain upon what terms the said tea would be sent to them, end quote. So these selectmen in the town were trying to get these people to effectively reject the tea. There was a concerted effort because these duties had been levied against the tea. There was a concerted effort being made to try to get people to reject this tea. They didn't want it imported, and we read a little bit of this before, how other colonies had basically sent the ships back. And the really the exception was Boston, where the ship was not sent back, the tea was thrown into the harbor. But prior to the tea being thrown into the harbor, what we're beginning to see here is that the people who were organizing around Boston had tried to get this tea either not accepted, not unloaded, sent back to London, tried to get this ship out of the harbor, so on and so forth. The colonies were, you know, really working similarly in that regard, in, in many cases. Let us continue. This is a, a document written from the Committee of Correspondence of Boston to the Committee of Plymouth. It was written in Boston on December 7th, 1773, same day as the previous. And I quote, The Committee of Correspondence for this town duly received your letter of the 14th, and note the most important content, contents. We inform you in great haste that every chest of tea on board the three ships in this town was destroyed the last evening. Without the least injury... To the vessels or any other property. Our enemies must acknowledge that the people have acted upon pure and upright principle. 
the people at the Cape will, we hope, behave with propriety and as becomes men resolved to save their country, end quote. Interesting. So they're basically documenting that, yes, the tea was thrown into the harbor. But they are careful to note that there was no injury to other property or to the ships. So it was just the tea. Just the tea was thrown into the harbor. The ships were not set ablaze. People were not murdered. No other property was destroyed, etc. So that's what they're documenting here. But they're also wanting to document this, quote, Our enemies must acknowledge that these people have acted upon pure and upright principle, end quote. Interesting. Pure and upright principle. So they believed they were in the right to destroy that tea for uh, whatever reason it was that they had. And of course, we know what reason it was that they had. They were basically protesting these taxes. They didn't want to import this stuff if it meant that they uh, had to pay taxes and duties on it and deal with the British manipulation in their markets. So let us, uh, let's read about more about what happened on that day, December 16th of 1773. And this is going to be, again, the Committee of Correspondence of Boston to other committees of correspondence, generally, written in Boston on December the 17th of 1773. And I quote, Yesterday we had a greater meeting of the body than ever. The country, coming in from 20 miles round and every step was taken, that was practical for returning the teas. The moment it was known out of doors that Mr. Roach could not obtain a pass for his ship by the castle, a number of people huzzahed in the street, and in a very little time, every ounce of the teas on board of the captain's hall, bruce, and coffin was immersed in the bay, without the least injury to private property. The spirit of the people on this occasion surprised all parties who viewed the scene, end quote. There was actually said to be quite a few people out there who had really gathered to try to... They were gathering really to try to get this tea out of Boston. These people wanted that tea out of Boston like like you can't believe. Just as they say here, quote, Every step was taken that was practicable for returning the teas, end quote. And it was only when they couldn't get rid of the tea by some proper means that they decided to throw the tea in the harbor and just get rid of it and be done with it. Because they, they tried to get rid of it every other way. They just couldn't get rid of the stuff. And this reference to, quote, Captains Hall, Bruce, and Coffin, end quote, those are three ship captains. They were essentially, as best as I understand, there were in fact three ships involved in this, all carrying tea, apparently. And all of them knew that the people of Boston wanted this tea out of the harbor. And we're going to get into the details of that here right now. Now this is, I'm going to read you excerpts from a letter from Samuel Adams written to Arthur Lee. This was written in Boston on December 31st of 1773. And I quote, My dear sir, I am now to inform you of as remarkable an event as had yet happened since the commencement of our struggle for American liberty. The meeting of the town of Boston, an account of which I enclosed in my last, was succeeded by the arrival of the ship Falmouth, Captain Hall, with 114 chests of the East India Company's tea on the 28th of November last. The next day, the people met in Fenil Hall without observing the rules prescribed by law for calling them together. And although, and although that hall is capable of holding 1,200 or 1,300 men, they were soon obliged for the want of room to adjourn to the Old South Meeting House, where were assembled upon this important occasion 5,000, some say 6,000 men, end quote. That's a large meeting, ladies and gentlemen, especially for the time. Now, that was on the uh, 28th of November. We're going to skip down in this letter a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to move forward to roughly the 14th of December. And I quote, The next day, being the 14th, the people met again at the Old South Church, and having ascertained the owner, they compelled him to apply 
at the Custom House for a clearance for his ship to London with the tea on board, and appointed ten gentlemen to see it performed. End quote. So these people basically gave orders for these for, for the for the ship to leave with the tea. Now, the ship effectively had orders it's of its own that they are to unload the tea. Okay, we get, we have to get this tea off the ship. That's just the way it is. We got to get the tea off. The British government wants this tea unloaded. And the people of Boston are like, oh no, you're going to keep that tea on that ship. You're not going to unload it and you're going to sail back to London. Thank you very much, kind sir. Now, there's going to be references in these next sessions to sections to a Mr. Roach, and I believe we heard Mr. Roach in a previous, I think it was in one other document. Yeah, there was. We, we heard Mr. Roach previously, a few, a few uh, cor- letters ago. Mr. Roach, as I understand it, was a businessman, and he had some business ownership interest in at least one of these ships. I forget if it was more than one or just one. So you're going to hear references to this guy in this letter. Just know that's who we're talking about. So let's continue. Quote, Mr. Roach informed them that he had, according to their injunction, applied to the collector of the customs for a clearance and received an answer from the collector that he could not consistently with his duty grant him a clearance until the ship should be discharged of the dutable article on board, end quote. That's a fancy way of saying the taxable item on board the ship, the tea, you gotta unload it. We're not gonna let you, basically the government is again, the local authority is saying, that is that is to say the local authority that is most accountable to the British government, is saying, you ain't leaving, buddy. Your ship has to stay here until you unload that tea. It's a taxable item. We're going to unload it. People are going to pay the tax on the tea, and so on and so forth. That's just the way it is. Mr. Roach tried. <laughs> I guess he did his best. He applied for a um, a clearance to get get the ship on out, but it was denied. Okay. So let us continue a little bit further down in this letter. Quote, You will observe by the printed proceedings that the people were resolved that the tea should not be landed, but sent back to London in the same bottom, and the property should be safeguarded while in port, which they punctually performed. It cannot therefore be fairly said that the destruction of the property was in their contemplation, end quote. So the people of the city of Boston actually placed a guard at the port to protect the tea. And I'm guessing it was also kind of in part to make sure that the tea didn't leave the ship. He didn't really say that explicitly, but my best guess is is that they placed guards there to make sure that that tea did not leave that ship. That's what I would uh, probably assume in this circumstance. Let us continue, shall we? And I quote, It is proved that the consignees, together with the collector of the customs and the governor of the province, prevented the safe return of the East India Company's property to London. The people finding all their endeavors for this purpose thus totally frustrated dissolved the meeting, which had consisted by common estimation of at least 7,000 men, many of whom had come from towns at the distance of 20 miles. In less than four hours, every chest of tea on board the three ships, which had by this time arrived, 342 chests, or rather their content, the contents of them, was thrown into the sea without the least injury to the vessels or any other property, end quote. They keep mentioning that. They didn't damage any other property. They're trying to make a point that this was not a random uprising meant to destroy and burn and pillage and loot and all the rest of it. They tried to get rid of this tea by every possible means available to them. But the local authority, including Governor Hutchison, did not want this tea out of Boston. They wanted it unloaded. The people of Boston said no. So these people were at an impasse. Now, was it the right thing to do to throw the tea into the harbor, in my humble opinion? Probably not. I, I know that the, the colonists wanted the tea out of, out of the harbor. I, I got that. 
but it's still destruction of property at the end of the day. And as Benjamin Franklin had said on previous episodes, making restitution would have been appropriate. But let me tell you what was also inappropriate, not just the throwing of the tea in the harbor. What was inappropriate was the response to the throwing of the tea in the harbor, and that would basically be the Intolerable Acts of 1774, which we've already covered. And we've covered that, what Dr. Franklin said about that, the cost of the tea versus the cost to Boston and Massachusetts of the Intolerable Acts, and the Intolerable Acts were a a very striking overreaction to what happened in Boston on that day. All right. Now, that is a very brief summary, a very brief summary of the Boston Tea Party and what led up to it. And there were many thousands of people who were apparently very happy to see that tea go into the harbor. The reason why they were happy is because these people were just angry at the way they had been, the way they felt like they had been mistreated by the crown. And they had been. But again, it was an overreaction, in my humble opinion. I don't think they should have thrown the tea into the harbor. But, again, this does not justify the intolerable acts. That was a huge overreaction. And we know that, basically, at that point, th- this was just the, the excuse that the British Crown and the Parliament needed to effectively declare war on the colonies. We've talked about this. But I never really covered the Boston Tea Party at any meaningful length at all. We've talked about it a number of times, just in passing. And I thought I would go back and dig up some of these letters from 1773 and talk about it a little bit more at length. If anybody wants me to talk a little bit more about the Boston Tea Party, uh, let me know, and I might do some longer version of this someday. But I wanted to have a little bit of background, a little bit of context around that. So I thank you for listening to that story. Now, I am going to have some concluding remarks to this podcast. I'm going to have some news about the podcast. I'm going to have some news possibly about some other things, and we're going to talk about that in the next section if you would like to stick around for that. I would appreciate you joining me, and let's do that right now. All right, so that's that. So glad to hear from John Adams today. Glad to hear from Samuel Adams, the Adams cousins, the fighting Adams cousins. Not fighting with each other, of course, but the uh, fighting with the enemy. That, that would be the, uh, the tyrannical British king and the British parliament. Boston Tea Party, ladies and gentlemen. It's amazing how something seemingly, I mean, it was a significant event no matter what you, it was a large amount of property that was, that was the tea, that is, that was destroyed. But in the grand scheme of things, given what the consequence of it all was, what it led to, the way it inspired the king to become even more tyrannical than he already was, again, he could have asked for restitution of the tea, and he would have been justified in doing so. I mean, technically, it was property that was destroyed, but they didn't really do just that, did they? They did a whole heck of a lot more than that. They decided to drop the hammer and oppress their people, take away their rights, and, and destroy their government, their local government. But, like we've said before, when tyrants see an opportunity to oppress their people, they usually take advantage of it. They're just sitting around waiting for an opportunity like this to come up, and there it was. Now, as far as the news on the podcast, I actually, by the way, while I was recording this podcast, I actually, at some point, I went into a rant about things. And about five minutes into it, I thought about, well, let me get back to the topic. But I just kept going. And so it probably will not make an appearance on this podcast. I still have the recording of it. I I cut it out and I put it in a separate file. Uh, It may be uploaded as additional content on the podcast, bonus content. And that leads me to, that's a good segue to my topic here. Sometime within the next week, it is possible that you may begin to see bonus content show up on the podcast, on Apple Podcasts specifically. And these are all kind of done under the banner of, you know, Podcasts with Roman, essentially. Which was my original title, by the way, for my Patreon website, Podcasts with Roman. And that's that's kind of what I'm going back to, is this concept of, you know, not just one podcast, but 
a few different podcasts all done by me. And I do that because I know people like different things and people like a little bit of a different approach to things and so on and so forth. So some of this content is going to be more geared towards a certain type of listener and some of it's going to be more geared towards a certain type and so on and so forth. You get the idea. And hopefully I have enough time to balance all this out because as of right now, I barely have time for this, but we'll see. So I hope you join me on the next episode. Bonus content if it shows up this week. I hope it does. And until next time, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.